When you go to the movies and watch a film, sometimes it's a clear indicator that there's probably going to be a, a sequel. You know, if, if, if you ever saw Star Wars A New Hope, you know, Luke Skywalker has got his little whatever it's called, and he's flying through there, and he shoots um, a, a little area of the Death Star, and it blows up. And you think, okay, the good guys have won. But then you see Darth Vader spiraling kind of out of control, but he regains control and flies off unnoticed. And so you kind of know that there's probably coming another film in the series. Well, Pastor Chris read today the closing verses of Exodus chapter 40, but it's not really intended to be the ending at all. I will get to the conclusion of the Exodus saga momentarily, but like Star Wars The New Hope, and I reference it merely as a point of analogy, the culmination of Exodus also has a prequel. And so I want to start off by pointing out that Exodus echoes the first creation. Exodus echoes the first creation. One of the hardest things sometimes for me as a preacher is to determine the difference between what I find compelling and what perhaps individuals in the pew might find interesting. Um, let me just say today is more of a teaching, and we're going to kind of go into some deep waters before we come out on the other side on something that I hope is spiritually refreshing for each of us. A number of biblical scholars have pointed out parallels that exist between the building of the tabernacle and the start of Genesis. I would draw your attention to the screen. I want you to listen to these texts. Exodus 25, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Exodus 30, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Exodus 30, verse 11, the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Exodus 30, verse 17, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Exodus 30, verse 22, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Exodus 30, verse 34, Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 31, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, And finally, Exodus 31, verse 12 reads, now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I don't know if you counted, but there were seven sayings. And what is, I think, even more compelling is that at the end of the seventh saying that we read in Exodus, there's a repetition of the pattern of the Sabbath. You can read verses 13 to 17 yourself. It's the same pattern of the Sabbath that we see in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. The similarity is uncanny. Seven times in the account of creation, God said. Likewise, seven times in the tabernacle instructions, God said. And then both end with a description 
of the Sabbath. God had created humanity to work, to wed, and to worship. He created humanity to reflect his image and to glorify him. Only something distorted that creation. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, exchanging the truth for the lie that Satan told them. Catch now once again the ongoing pattern as Exodus unfolds. Exodus 31, 18 reads, When he, God, had finished speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. Last Sunday, we studied Exodus chapter 32. As God was recording the Ten Commandments in stone, the people had said that they would keep those commands, if you remember, in Exodus chapter 24, but they were already exchanging the truth for a lie. And this disruption that takes place in Exodus chapters 32 through 34 functions in the same way as Genesis chapter 3 in the opening pages of Scripture. On the other side of God's covenant with Adam, Adam disobeyed. On the other side of the covenantal requirement of Exodus 24, Israel disobeyed. In fact, if you were to cut out those three chapters, chapters 32 through 34, if you were to take those out and you were to move directly from Exodus chapter 31 to Exodus chapter 35, you wouldn't skip a beat. The movement goes from instructions for the tabernacle to construction of that tabernacle. I love Ray Vanderland's observation, and they could have come up on the screen, that in the creation account, God blessed all that he created. And in Genesis 1.28, he called us to fill it. Only we filled it with sin. At the building of the tabernacle, God directs Israel to make the space, and he promises to fill it with his glory. I really hope we don't miss the beauty of God's grace today. The golden calf of Israel's sin of idolatry doesn't prevent God from ultimately filling the tabernacle with his glory. Exodus chapters 25 to 31 provide the instructions. Exodus chapters 32 to 34 describe the sin and consequences. But Exodus chapters 35 to 40 picture the construction and consummation. God still has sinful Israel complete the building of the tent of meeting where his glory would reside. In the same way as with the instructions for the tabernacle, J. Blakenshop notices similar phraseology surrounding the building of the tabernacle and the creation account. Notice again, in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything he had made. In Exodus 39.43, Moses saw all the work they had done. 
In Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. In Exodus 39.42, thus all the work of the tabernacle was finished. In Genesis 2.2, God finished the work which he had done. In Exodus 40.33, so Moses finished the work. Psalm 19.1 says that God's handiwork at creation declares his glory. Now in the tabernacle, God pours out his glory. But why fill a tabernacle with his glory? It was to capture for Israel a reminder of the Sinai experience where they had a personal encounter with the presence of God. In Exodus 24, verse 17, God's glory was a consuming fire atop the mountain. In Exodus 40, verse 38, God's glory was a consuming fire by night in the tabernacle. The tabernacle would thus be a portable Sinai. The Hebrew people would carry with them a reminder of their experience with God wherever they went. They would not be able to forget something so real and so powerful as what they had encountered. Only the continuation of this for the universal church, for you and for me, does not take shape in the prequel, but in the unfolding of a sequel. Notice how Exodus does not just point back to the original creation, but that Exodus points us to a new creation. The sequel begins with God's command, which immediately follows at the start of Leviticus. The command will entail a sacrificial system to cover the sins of God's people. This sacrificial system eventually moves from the tabernacle to the temple. Look again to the screen where I will read from 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 4. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. Jesus Christ comes to fulfill the sacrificial system that begins in the tabernacle and that moves to the temple. A more literal, literal translation of the text that Chris read earlier from the New Testament in John 1 verse 14 reads like this, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Then the New Living Translation renders the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. 
In John 2, Jesus had told the Jews, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it up in three days. The main point is this. Jesus is the glory of God incarnate. I want you to take a look now at the uh, text from the Mount of Transfiguration. And the next couple of Sundays, we're going to explore this more deeply. But I want to read just the opening four verses of Matthew 17. Six days later, which by the way, that was the seventh day. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moses finally gets to see the fullness of God's glory. Will we? It is the most important question that we will ever answer. Will we see Jesus? Do not confuse what is right in front of you. Salvation does not come by any other means than the person of Jesus. It is not by any goodness within us it is not by the accumulation of more knowledge. And yet, even Peter confuses this at the Mount of Transfiguration. He would suggest that they build three tents to memorialize the moment. But there was no need to build anything because the living tabernacle was standing before him. The Mount of Transfiguration serves as the climax to the Mount Sinai moment. Once again, God speaks from a cloud, and once again, God's glory comes to rest in the tabernacle. What are we supposed to see? Not the law, as represented by Moses. Not the prophets, as represented by Elijah. For the law and the prophets simply testify to the new covenant of grace as given in the person of Christ. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, came to dwell in our midst so as to make a way for us to have restored communion with the Father. Look again the screen once more and notice just a few more connections we can make. Jesus fulfills the burnt offering of Leviticus 1. Paul explains in Ephesians 5-2 that Christ was offered as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus fulfills the grain and first fruits offering of Leviticus 2. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that the resurrected Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then Jesus fulfills the peace offering of Leviticus 3. According to Paul in Romans 5, 1, we are justified by faith in Christ and made to have peace with him, through him with God through him. 
And then Jesus fulfills the sin offering of Leviticus 4. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Corinthians 5.21 I could go on. The entire sacrificial system pointed to Jesus in some way. And Hebrews chapter 10 makes it clear that Christ fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53.10 by making his life an offering for our sin once and for all. Now stop to think for a moment of the monumental connection here. Despite the great sin of Israel in Exodus chapter 32, God still dwelt among his people through the tabernacle. What did the people need to do? They only needed to create the space according to God's design. <laughs> How astounding is it? When we see the fulfillment of Exodus and how it has come in Jesus. Despite our great sin, Christ wants you and me to have a relationship with him and to behold his glory. He prays in John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. How astounding is it when we see for that relationship to happen, all we have to do is to make space in our hearts. All we have to do is follow God's design. Listen once more as we look to the screen to Acts 2, 36 to 38. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we to do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, is there room in your heart for Jesus. If we create the space for him, if we believe Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead, then we shall be saved. Plain and simple. Don't add anything else to it. Hear this prayer from an unknown author. Have you ever considered that God has fallen in love with you? He sends you flowers every spring. He sends you sunshine every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he listens to you. He can live anywhere in the universe, but he chose your heart. God didn't promise days without pain, laughter without sorrow, sun without rain. But he did promise strength for the day, comfort for the tears, and light for the way. Amen.
Where does this strength and comfort and light come from? After we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit pitches his tent in our hearts. The glory on the mountaintop that subsequently rested in the tabernacle and the temple now dwells in you and me. Wow, come on, y'all. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here to guide us by day and by night. So if the Hebrew people could not forget their personal encounter with God's glory, how much more true should it be that you and I should never forget the powerful and real encounter that we've had with Jesus Christ? I have experienced his love and his mercy and his grace. Have you? I have a testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Do you? If you have not yet had such an encounter with the presence of God through the person of Christ, why don't you let him come into your heart? If you make space, Jesus promises to fill it with the glory of his Holy Spirit. Peter proclaims in Acts 3.19, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Provided you have had such an encounter with the presence of God through the gift of his son, I want for you to understand very practically what it means. Look with me once more. First, you have been redeemed from bondage to sin in order to worship Christ with your life. Second, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the Lord's gift of salvation wherever it is you go. Third, you have the new creation to look forward to. When according to Revelation 21 and verse 3, the voice from the throne will say, Look! Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And that, my friends, is the greatest blessing we could ever imagine. To enjoy God in the fullness of his glory for all eternity. Our exodus thus comes to an end in the presence of God's glory. Our exodus, our exodus, if we are in Christ, comes to an end in the presence of God's glory. Whew. 
Could there be anything more refreshing than that? I can only imagine. As Laura leads us in hopefully that familiar song, I can only imagine the altar is open. If the Lord is leading you in some way, come. Let's stand together as we sing. What it will be like when I walk by your side I can only imagine what my eyes will see When your face is before me I can only imagine I can only imagine Christ, our Savior, and our Lord.